And what Luke focuses his attention on for that week is first six conflicts, encounters in the temple. Jesus is seen in Luke's gospel as teaching in the temple. That's what Luke focuses on. And at the beginning of chapter 20 and at the end of 21, we get this sort of literary bookend that lets us know this is the thrust of the section. 20 chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, indicating this is what he did commonly, but then even more specifically at the end of chapter 21, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So Luke isn't dividing us into days. He wants to show us uh, typically what happened. And what happens is conflict. Israel's Messiah has come. He has cleansed the temple. He's reformed Israel's worship. And the leaders, the scribes, the Sadducees, the elders, the priests, they've come at him and they have utterly failed. He has silenced them. And so last week we finished the conflict. And now, having announced the judgment on the scribes, having cleansed the temple, having identified himself and himself only as the true prophet of Israel, the one who could rightly interpret scripture, Jesus now spends the rest of chapter 21, verses 5 all the way through the end, announcing judgment, destruction, and the end of Jerusalem and the temple. And so this week and the next three weeks, we're working through Luke 21, 5 through 38, as Jesus predicts the end, the end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the age, his return. Um, This is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse and the other Gospels. And it's Jesus' most extensive teaching in Luke about the events surrounding his return, the conflict, and the age in which we now live. I'd like to begin by actually reading the entire section, Luke 21, 5 through 38, even though this morning we'll only be looking at verses 5 through 11. So read with me, Luke 21, 5 through 38. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes And in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which... None of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance. To fulfill all that is written, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. They will see the sign, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves, and you know that summer is already near. So then, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And it'll take us four weeks to get through that material. A lot there. And in it, Jesus, as I said, speaks most clearly, most elaborately about the events surrounding his second coming and the end of the age. It's a difficult passage in part because Jesus predicts an event that it appears to us that has already, at least partially, been fulfilled. Uh, As many of you know, in 70 AD, uh, due to further Jewish revolts, the Roman army led by Titus crushed, destroyed the temple, took it apart. All that's left is the retaining wall. There is no temple on Temple Mount right now. And so it's difficult for us to understand what of what Jesus says in this section has a near fulfillment, what is a far fulfillment. One commentator puts it this way. The special feature of the eschatology in this discourse is that a final but distant future event is prefigured in a near and realized event. The distant future event is the coming of the Son of Man, the final goal of history, which is symbolized and anticipated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the holy city. And so we're going to work our way through this. But I want you to notice that Jesus' emphasis here is on his disciples and how they are to live. They want to know the signs. They want to know the times. So look at this piece by piece. But Jesus primarily is telling them to persevere, be of heart, not to be afraid, not to be deceived. And so as we look, Jesus predicts the end. 
part one, not one stone left upon another. We're going to work through this in five points. Let's begin now um, with point number one. This section begins with admiration. Admiration. This is a break from our last section where Jesus condemned the scribes. He did it speaking to his disciples in the hearing of the people. He gave the counterexample of the widow and the type of faith and fidelity that, that is pleasing to God. Here, we get a sort of loose introduction. And while some were speaking of the temple, okay, who are the some? Who are the some? I think we get some clue in verse 7 on how they address Jesus. There's many groups in the temple. There's, there's his enemies, the scribes, the chief priests, leading men. But the most recent division we saw was in 20 verse 45. Um, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So the people are what are filling the temple. The people are coming day by day, hanging on his words from dawn till dusk. One of the things that typifies Jesus' disciples is they don't generally call him teacher. They call him a lord. They call him master. They call him other things. So when they address him as teacher, the same title used by the scribes earlier, it suggests to me this is something started by the people. I couldn't be dogmatic with that, but the blank here, the people are with Jesus in and around the temple. And as we try to harmonize this passage with the Gospels, it's possible that it began maybe as Jesus was walking to where he stayed at night or coming in the morning. They're in a position where they can see the temple on the Temple Mount. They can admire it. They can see its, its gold. But the people are with Jesus in and around the temple. And what we see is this. They're speaking of the noble and beautiful temple. They're, they're impressed by this temple. They are impressed by this temple. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Haggai. If you don't know where Haggai is, it's two books to the left of Matthew. And when we turn there, stay there, because we're going to look at the next book, Zechariah, a little bit later in the message, so it might not be a bad idea to have your, um, yourself there. They're impressed by this temple. This temple that Jesus is teaching in and around has very humble origins. If you are here through our study of the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah was sent as the second prophet to Israel to encourage them to rebuild the temple. And in Haggai, we get some description of the second temple. Remember, Solomon's temple was opulent. It was, it was large. The Queen of Sheba came, was amazed. Haggai chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 1. In the seventh month, the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? It is as nothing in your eyes. And so the beginnings of this temple are humble. It was nothing compared to the opulence of Solomon's temple. And yet God promises in verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now I suggest that that's not referring to the building project that Herod the Great did in elaborating, expanding the temple, but rather the glory and the honor bestowed upon this temple. Because this temple they're rebuilding is the house that Jesus will cleanse, where the Son of God sets up teaching Israel from within it. And so, keep your finger here, but turning back to Luke, what we notice is, at least for the people, what they're impressed by. 
And, and this links up with a question that came up in the ABF last week. How is it that these crowds hanging on Jesus' words, these people who are, who are seeing him disarm and, and, and embarrass and silence the religious leaders, how is it that they turn on him in less than a week? Well, I think part of it we see here is what they're impressed by. In this respect, they're awfully similar to the scribes. Remember, the scribes, they love the appearance and the pretense of religion. Look at the end of chapter 20, starting in verse 46. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long, prayers. They'll receive the greater condemnation. See, the scribes liked the looks of religion. They liked the benefits of religion. They liked the appearance and the honor and the praise of religion. It was all external. And here these crowds, what are they, what are they impressed by? They're impressed by architecture. And, and it was admittedly impressive. By the time the temple had been built and elaborated, we have from extra-biblical sources, from historians of that day, descriptions of just how opulent, how, how, how large and impressive it was. This, this is an impressive building. Listen to Josephus, a secular Jew, writing about this time, about the grandeur of the temple. Here's a quote. The gate opening into the temple was completely overlaid with gold, as was the whole wall around it. It had above it golden vines from which clung grape clusters as tall as a man. And it had golden doors, 50 cubits high, 16 broad. Before these hung a veil of equal length of Babylonian tapestry with embroiderment of blue and fine linen and of scarlet also in purple wrought with marvelous skill. Additionally, the historian Tacitus described the temple as immensely opulent. With regard to its immensity, the southeast corner of the retaining wall hung some 15 stories above the ground that sloped down to the Kidron Valley. The blocks of stone used in the construction were enormous. Josephus reports that some were 40 cubits, that's 60 feet, in length. And even though no one block that size has been found, there are stones in Wilson's Arch measuring 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep, weighing each over a million pounds. The magnitude of the Temple Mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. It's an impressive building. But I'll tell you something that's more impressive. The Son of God is in it. And these people are impressed with the architecture. Perhaps, as this is put side by side with the scribes, we're getting some inkling into why this crowd and why people in this crowd might drift. They seem to be impressed with some of the same things the scribes are impressed with. Jesus is not impressed. We go through the admiration of the people. They are speaking of the noble and beautiful temple to Jesus' condemnation of it. This is is no new note in Luke's gospel. Jesus has already announced the desolation and destruction of the temple. But notice first that even though these people are impressed with the temple, they're impressed with the gold and the ornaments and its size and its grandeur. Jesus is not impressed by the temple. Jesus said in Luke 13, if you remember when he wept over Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. See, similarity to the scribes, it looks impressive. But what is the internal reality? This is a city that kills prophets 
and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Jesus isn't impressed with the architecture. The house is forsaken. And a little later in Luke's gospel, in chapter 19, just just as he's seeing Jerusalem before he enters it, Jesus says this in 1943 and 44, the days will come when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. People are impressed with all the, with the wrong thing here. What's impressive is God in the flesh. The word of God is speaking the word of God to the people. Here, these people are impressed with the architecture. Jesus is not impressed. Because Jesus, we saw last week, is impressed with the reality, not the appearance. And this temple was a den of thieves. This city of God is a city that stones and murders the prophets God sends to her. Jesus predicts that the temple will be utterly destroyed. He says it clearly. And this has got to be a shock to his hearers. They're, they're marveling. Oh, this is, what building is like this? Look at its grandeur. Look at the gold. Look at the noble and large stones. Jesus, as for these things, the days will come and there will not be one left upon another that is not thrown down. That's kind of, it's kind of like a wet blanket on their praise. You guys are impressed with the wrong thing. This, this building is, is, is impressive. It is it's coming down. It's utterly being destroyed. It will not last. Its beauty is not important. It will not endure. So Jesus, this is what sets up the discourse. Jesus gives this shocking announcement, which brings then, point three, to the question. We've got admiration, condemnation, question. And they really have a double question. Verse 7. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And I think it's really important here to understand what's going on. Because if you think he's just talking about the destruction of the temple, then all of the talk of his second coming and the return would, would seem confusing for him to include. But notice something. They say... When will these things be? You see, even though he said one thing, the temple will be destroyed, they see in that a group of things. And the reason I believe that is the case, and if you've kept your finger in Haggai, now just go a few pages over to Zechariah 12, is because the Old Testament predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, predicts these events. And so I believe when they hear Jesus say this, these people would know their Old Testaments. They assume he's talking about the events of Zechariah 12 and 14. Let's read them. These are end times events. And so I think this is the context in which they're hearing Jesus speak. And it explains why Jesus brings in all of this eschatological second coming um, as he answers their question. Because they're speaking about things. They understand that this is part of a bigger package. And there's many Old Testament passages that speak of it, but probably the most clear is Zechariah 12 and 14. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. 
Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I'll make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left the surrounding peoples while Jerusalem shall remain inhabited in its place. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And they make this amazing promise of the conversion of, of Israel. This is, this is one of the great eschatological hopes is that the nation who rejected their Savior will in time receive him. Read this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So there's coming a day when the nations will surround Jerusalem, and yet in the first telling of it in chapter 12 of Zechariah, it appears that Jerusalem is victorious. This is not a defeat. But, but Zechariah 12 is giving us the overview, the bird's eye picture. Ultimately, Jerusalem will be victorious. But go to chapter 14. It becomes clear that before the victory, there is defeat. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord and the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And will be plundered. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken. And the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile. Now there is the context in which I think they're framing the destruction of the temple. When Jesus says this temple will be taken apart stone by stone, I think they're assuming it's in this event, which is why they say these things. Now keep reading. It's not the utter defeat for them. Half the city should go into exile, but the rest of the people should not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split into... What happens is the Messiah returns, and he touches down on the Mount of Olives, and he fights, and there is victory. So this is the context, I believe, that, that his audience is hearing him speaking and why they ask, when will these things be? And consequently, why they're asking for what sign will there be? They understand this is cataclysmic distress. This is a very bad time. And they want to know, when will these things happen? And will there be signs? And Jesus is going to spend the rest of this chapter answering this question, elaborating on this. This really sets up the discourse. His announcement of the temple's destruction, them connecting that with the final times events, and them asking these two questions, when and what signs? And we're just going to tap into this this morning. 
as Jesus sets it up. And we're going to look at it more in the next few weeks. But now we move from question to instruction. Question to instruction. As Jesus really gives them different type of instruction what they're asking for. He will give them some, some idea of the timing. In fact, if you look at the whole discourse, you see the timing motif here, right? Starting in verse 12, before all this, chapter, uh, verse 20, when you see its desolation has come near, the end of 28, your redemption is drawing near, 31, I mean, yeah, 31, no, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is answering their questions ultimately, but really he's giving them and us instructions on how to live as we approach that day. And that's really, I think, the application for us. He gives three commands here. You can see them in verses 8 through 9. See to it you are not led astray. Do not go after them, and do not be terrified. So here's Jesus' instruction. And what's interesting is his audience is concerned about the danger from without, the danger of the nations gathering, the danger of, of this siege and destruction of the temple, and all of Jesus' warnings are the danger from within. See, each warning in verses 8 through 9 begins with the same Greek letter, pi or p, and each ends with an identical suffix, making the warnings easy to memorize. Verses 8 through 9 are not simply warnings of dangers attending the military and political situation befalling Jerusalem. They are specific warnings to followers of Jesus. And Christian believers of Luke's day who reading those who will come in my name... And these warnings, they are to understand that the greatest threats to believers are not external dangers, cataclysmic though they be, but dangers inside the household of faith. Dangers to faith will not be merely sporadic and occasional. There will be many who appear in messianic guise, leading many astray. Prophetic pretenders, along with wars and uprisings, are necessary precedents to the fall of Jerusalem, but they do not signal its immediate arrival. Jesus' followers must resist the temptation to believe, be misled, and follow false leaders. They want to know, when, when is this cataclysmic event going to happen? And Jesus' warning to them is to stay on task and watch out for the danger that comes from within. So the first warning he gives is this. Do not be deceived and led astray. Do not be deceived and led astray. When will these things happen? What will signs? Jesus' warning, see to it you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. You see, there will be many false messiahs, many false messiahs. Even in the book of Acts, we hear about those leading the people astray. In Acts 5.36, the council's meeting, and they speak, before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 500, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed. And in Acts 21, 38, we read of a man, they, they think Paul is the Egyptian then, who stirred up recently a revolt and led 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness. Jesus is again drawing their attention. They need to focus on him. They're impressed with the architecture. They need to be impressed with him. They need to not let any other claimant come and shift their attention away from him. Because ultimately, first and foremost, this may seem obvious, to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. And so even though they want to know about the danger from without, the armies are to gather the destruction of the temple, Jesus' first warning is, 
Don't lose your focus on me and don't perceive and believe other messianic pretenders. And human history is littered with that. You think of David Koresh, you think of other cults and situations. It's, it's not uncommon for these things to come. And first and foremost, before we worry about our, our end times charts, we need to keep our focus on Christ. Not be deceived and led astray. There will be false messiahs. And also, there will be many false predictions. Because what these false messiahs will say is, the time is at hand. I think even our recent history and some concerns with blood moons and other things, there, there are always people saying, now is the time, the time is at hand. And Jesus says in plain terms, don't be deceived, don't follow after it. So if somebody goes on TV and says they know when Jesus is returning, they know when the time is, they're wrong, they don't. And Jesus says, don't follow them, don't listen to them, don't go after them. This is a, a perennial danger in the church. As we read 2 Thessalonians, we see that somebody there had misled them. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. Paul has to write this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us. There's actually apparently forged letters saying they're from Paul to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So even in the early church, there was this day, did we miss it? Is it just about here? Calm down. And so Jesus' first instruction is to stay focused on him, not to follow false Christ, and not to listen to false predictions. If you remember back in, in Luke 17, verse 20 to 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In fact, if you look at the larger flow of this text, next week we're going to look at the things that take place long before his coming, the things that typify this age. And then, starting in verse 20, in the week after that, we will see some signs that portend the Christ's return, but they're imminent, and they're unmistakable. Verse 25, there'll be signs in sun and moon and stars. You know, the, the, the moon will turn to blood. The sun will blot out. Nations leaving nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the sign of the... They, I keep throwing in the word sign. Um, yeah. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Th those are the signs that occur. They're unmistakable that, that the end is just about here. But apart from that, you're not going to predict it. And, and people constantly, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 88. You know, no, these books, and then next year, nine, 89 reasons why Jesus... Oh, I knew a guy once who was insistent he knew when the Lord was returning. I took him to where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour. His response was, I think I know the month, though. <laughs> Exercises in missing the point. They want to know about this, and he will tell them. He'll give them signs. But the first warning for us, and this is instructive, is stay focused on Christ. Don't follow other teachers. Don't follow other saviors. Follow Christ. 
And don't be, don't be led astray by these predictions. The time is at hand. We want to live. We heard this yesterday. We want to live as though we might face the Lord this afternoon. And we're going to see we need to be prepared to persevere, to suffer, to go the long haul. As Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. That's the stature we need to take. Do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. There's another word for us. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Verse 9. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So you are to be focused on the Lord. We're not to be distracted, deceived. But we're also not supposed to be timid and trembling. We live in an uncertain world. I mean, will there be a summit between President Trump and Kim Jong? I don't know. Like, will there be conflicts? Regardless of how those events play out, of course there'll be conflicts. That's the age we live in. And we're not to be afraid or shaken by these things. God's plans will not be determined by this summit or lack of summit. And we can read the news and become terrified. We can, we, we can vacillate back and forth, gaining hope when we hear good news and, and getting scared when we hear bad news. I mean, make no mistake, Jesus makes it clear, we are going to go through some rough times. It's not that the promise is everything's going to be okay, but these things should not shake us up to the core. They should not terrify us. We should understand they will come. They must take place. The end is not at once. Do not be afraid of wars and tumult. There will be wars, and wars bring suffering and carnage. But if our focus is on Christ, our Savior, the one who died for us, then we will not be afraid. And ultimately, that lack of fear is due to the confidence that we'll be raised with him. I mean, a little later, I know I'm stealing from later weeks, Jesus predicts they'll be killed. Look at verse 16. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will they put to death. You'll be hated for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. You'll lift up your ponytail when they cut your... No. What he's saying is there's nothing man can do to you that will not be undone by the resurrection. Not a hair of your head will perish. They can't ultimately harm you because God will raise you from the dead. If you are a person who's put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then just as God raised Jesus from the dead, so he'll raise you from the dead. And so even though we're walking into persecution and we're walking through wars, we can then not be afraid. Because there's nothing man can do to us that God cannot undo, redeem, and bring to fruition and perfection in the resurrection. That's the basis of the logic let the worldlings be fearful and run like the sky is falling. Let us be focused on Christ, undistracted, undeterred, and unafraid. Do not be terrified. These things will happen. Of course they will. It's the age we live in. But the end will not be at once. That's the next point we get here. They come first, wars and tumult, but they do not herald the end. They do not herald. They typify the age we live in. They typify the, that's Jesus' instruction. Now, the rest of this chapter, he will begin to answer their questions. But notice, the first things he wants his followers to hear, he wants this crowd to hear. The first thing he wants us to hear is the command to be focused and not distracted, the dangers from within, the dangers of false teachers rising up within the church, claiming to be Christ, claiming that they have knowledge about when he's coming. Now is the time. Don't be distracted, be focused, and don't be afraid. 
And that's the context we need to hear all the rest of this instruction in. It should encourage us. He, he will let us know. He'll give us some information about how the end will come. But his word for us is one of hope, steadfastness, perseverance. You see that again and again in this section. When these things take place, straighten up, raise your heads. Your redemption is near. Look at verse 34. Watch yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. That's the primary instruction for us. That's what we want to hear this morning as we study the return of the Lord, the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a message to wake us up, focus us, remove fear, and cause us to persevere in faith and in hope. That, that's what we're to get from this. This finally brings us to prediction. Prediction, verses 10 and 11. And here I believe the Lord lays out the types of events that are going to typify the age we live in, what he'll later refer to as the time of the Gentiles. And just very briefly introduce this. We'll pick this up more next week. Prediction. First, there will be national conflict. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. My kids are studying a history program. It's giving them the history of the world and they were listening to it on CD. And the, the history of the world is the history of nation rising against nation. Is it not? As, as various empires come and go, that is the age we live in. Nation rises against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. Famines and pestilences. What's the next thing that typifies this age? There will be natural disasters. They're already in, in the early church's day in Acts 11. Um, one of the prophets named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there'd be a great famine over all the world. And again, you can read through history, and history is filled with plagues and famine, disease, disasters. There'll be natural disasters. And point C, ultimately it will culminate, there will be great signs from the heaven. Great signs from the heaven. This is what Joel wrote about in Joel chapter 2. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Jesus is setting up the things we're to look at over the next three weeks. But as we prepare to transition to communion, I just want to bring us back to Jesus' first instruction. I think it's, it's important for us to understand that before he gives us any of these clarifying words about what's coming and how we'll be able to identify it, his his fundamental instruction to us is to stay focused, to stay unafraid, to persevere. Um, that, that's ultimately our marching orders. Even as we live, who knows, the Lord may return today, tomorrow, next week, next decade, next century. And for all of Christ's followers, his words remain the same. Stay focused. Do not be deceived. Don't follow any other would-be savior. Don't listen to these predictions. And do not be afraid. Let's close our word of prayer and we will have a time of communion. Lord God, help us um, to live this way confident in your ability to raise that no matter what man does to us, not a hair of our head will perish, but that you who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us. Keep us focused, guard us from deception. Guard us from following after others and away from Christ and help us not to be fearful even as we hear of terrible things in our world, terrible atrocities, wars and rumors of wars. Lord, let us have a confidence in you and your power 
and your sovereign goodness and grace towards us, that no matter what man does to us, you will raise us, you will redeem us, because you have bought and paid for us on the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.